Hello and welcome to the role of executive power and discretion under the rule of law, a conference held at Stanford University's Hoover Institution in March of 2015. Hosted by distinguished visiting fellow Alan Meltzer and senior research fellow Ken Scott, the conference is part of Hoover's initiative on regulation and the rule of law, which conducts research and analysis on the foundations of the market system, private property rights, and the rule of law in relation to a free society. This podcast features the concluding panel of the conference, and it covers issues about regulation and the rule of law. The panelists are Michael Rappaport of the University of San Diego, Ed Rubin of Vanderbilt University, and John Yu of the University of California, Berkeley. It was recorded on March 6, 2015. Today, really, I'd like to talk a little bit about the issues of the conference in a slightly broader perspective raised, really, in, in I think, Chris DeMute's paper. Chris suggested, if I'm reading him right, that executive regulations have grown increasingly over the years, that such regulations are often worse than systems of markets and simple rules, and that the process for enacting these regulations really has allowed for more of them and worse ones in the main. Um, now, I agree with all these points, which raises the question that I want to talk about, which is what can be done about this problem? What can be done to reform the system? And while Chris briefly discussed two reforms, I want to talk about a greater number of them. And um, in discussing the reforms, I want to focus not merely on whether that they, they would be desirable or not, but whether they be politically possible to enact. Um, my view about these matters really can be kind of captured in a simple way by reference to the, the famous statute in front of the FTC building um, in Washington, D.C., sort of man controlling trade. And the, there's a, a statue there and there's a man attempting to restrain a running horse. And, and, and the statue's based on the idea that, that trade needs to be restrained, but my view, it, it is the agencies that need to be restrained. Um, so what I want to do is talk about six possible reforms ranging from the RAINS Act to, to others that are not even discussed these days. And um, so I'm obviously going to have to paint with a broad brush here. But now, now first I want to talk about political feasibility a little bit. Um, Chris discussed a variety of, of considerations that affect the demand and the supply of regulation. But I want to focus in on an additional consideration that I think affects our ability to reform regulations, which is the fact that the president has a veto and doesn't want to constrain his own power, and the administrative agencies are concentrated interests that are very powerful in their own way in the political process. So is it possible to surmount these obstacles uh, to constraining executive regulation? Right? And if one looks at modern American history, I think, uh, there appear to be really two situations where you can get significant reforms of the existing powers of the executive branch. Right? So, so the first situation is, is exemplified by the War Powers Resolution of 1973. Um, in this situation, you have a single party that has overwhelming control of the Congress, and a president of the other party is in power. Right, so, so, so while the party controlling Congress might have been reluctant to constrain the president if he were of their own party, 
they have little sympathy for the president from the other party, and thus they'll override a presidential veto to limit the president's powers. And I think now if, if, if the Republicans had veto-proof majorities in the Congress, there would be a good chance we would see laws that would constrain executive power. But of course they don't. So. Um, the second situation is exemplified by uh, 1978 when we get the FISA Act and we get the Ethics and Government Act, which, which brings us the, the independent counsel. Um, in this situation, there's unified government, right? And normally in that situation, one might expect that the Congress would not want to limit their own president's power, maybe. But if the party, including the president, has strong ideological preferences for reform, then the majority party in Congress might be willing to limit their own president, and the president himself might be willing to sign the legislation, sort of based on an ideological idea. So, so here, ideology outweighs institutional interests. So if the Republicans were to win the presidency in 2016 and keep the Congress, then I believe there's a chance that some of the reforms I discuss could be adopted, assuming, assuming that the Republicans actually have an ideological commitment um, to, to those reforms. And, that, I think, is going to depend in part on the ideology of the president. You know, I'll talk a little bit more about that later. So let me discuss some of these reforms. They fall into three categories. There's uh, some of them shift power from the executive to Congress. There's a second category where it shifts from the executive to the courts. And a third category imposes internal restraints on the executive itself. Okay. So the first reform is the Reins Act, involves shifting power from, from the executive to the Congress under the Act. Major regulations would have to be approved by the Congress before they're put into effect. Each House gets an up or down vote on the regulation proposed by the agency. Now, I'm sympathetic to the Reins Act as a means of constra constraining executive regulation. At least some of the time, I, th I think that the Congress would be unwilling to enact the regulations that the agencies propose. But I'm extremely skeptical that Republican Congress would be willing to enact the Reins Act, even if we assume, as I think is right, that there's a strong ideological commitment among Republicans in favor of it. The act would require members of Congress many times each year to take responsibility for voting on controversial regulations. Right? And there would be no opportunity to consider amendments. And so the members would be forced to vote on a specific piece of legislation, and that would really put them in an extremely vulnerable situation. And I just don't think that the members would be willing to place themselves in, the, in this situation. So, so here, I think their personal interests will outweigh their ideological interests, and they'd be unwilling to enact the Reins Act, even though it would be a good idea. OK. so the. The second set of reforms either involves shifts of power from the executive to the judiciary or at least relies on the judiciary to implement them. And th these are three reforms. They're requiring that agencies conform to a cost-benefit standard, um, eliminating Chevron and maybe our deference, and thirdly, subjecting guidance documents to increase judicial review. All reforms discussed either by Chris DeMuth or, or Richard Epstein. 
Um, in the main, I, I support all of these changes as well. Um, well, I certainly think you can point out problems with them. I think on balance, they're, they're desirable, uh, basically because they put an additional check on, on the agencies. As the cost-benefit analysis, um, I favor limiting regulations um, to those that produce net benefits. I'm a bit less optimistic that a system of judicial review is always going to get the right answer here uh, with respect to accurate cost-benefit analysis. But even if the cost-benefit review does sometimes get the wrong answer, I still think it's going to be beneficial on, on the whole because it will at least stop some undesirable regulations. Now, some people worry. They say, well, it might block a lot of beneficial regulations, but I'm, I'm doubtful of that. And the reason is, first of all, I think the agencies are likely to get deference as to their cost-benefit analysis, so, so that's going to make it easier for them to get them, them passed. And they'll also, as, as Chris referred, um, there's some ability to manipulate the system and, and, and get more regulations that way. So I think it'll, it'll put some kind of limit, um, and we don't have to worry about it blocking too many. Um, Regarding Chevron, I think we ought to eliminate this type of deference. Um, Chevron was largely made up by the courts. It was made up by, largely by the D.C. Circuit, the Republican judges of the D.C. Circuit, and, and Justice Scalia on the Supreme Court. And the result of, of Chevron, as I, as I said yesterday, um, has been to greatly magnify executive discretion. Not only do they get the, the, the agencies not only get delegations from, from the Congress, now they also get significant deference as to the scope of their power, so this is like a double whammy. Um, the question, I think, is, is what do you replace Chevron with? Uh, and in my view, the best reform would be to, to use one of the traditional standards that existed prior to Chevron. There was a lot of different standards. That was part of the problem. But, but one of them was the idea that you should have plenary or de novo review for pure questions of law and deference for mixed questions of law and fact. Right. Um, this standard has the advantage of not overloading the courts with administrative cases, but at the same time placing a check on the agencies with respect to the most important cases. Uh, it's true it has a disadvantage, and it's, it's not an insignificant one, of requiring the courts to distinguish between pure questions and mixed questions, but on the whole I think this is feasible and um, the significant benefits of, of eliminating Chevron outweigh this, whatever costs are, are imposed by this. Finally, um, for the guidances issue, I agree with Richard that it makes sense to allow judicial review where the parties, where the agencies use the guidances to impose threats of liability on private parties. Right? So, um, where a party has to risk significant sanctions, as colleges have to do under Title IX, just to get judicial review, there's a real problem of supervision of administrative agencies and, and, and legality. Um, unfortunately, I think it's not entirely clear how to address these matters through a cross-cutting law. Right? So, so one possibility would be to enact as a statute a kind of narrower version of Rich's proposal to allow judicial review when the guidances appear to be threats. In other words, rather than just rely on the, the private parties as, as, 
to decide which ones to challenge you, the, the court would have to make a determination whether this is being used as a threat. Um, and, and that statute, you can make the statute even a little bit better um, by providing that such guidances are final agency action for purposes of judicial review. So you eliminate that obstacle. You still have standing questions, though. Um, another possibility is to adopt the pre-Vermont Yankee standard of the substantial impact test which would treat guidances as legislative rules requiring notice and comment when they have a substantial impact on the parties. And that would sometimes allow for pre-enforcement review as, as well. But I'm not sure about these, and perhaps really there's no cross-cutting solution, and maybe we need to adopt procedures that are specific to, to particular programs. Um, there's some good ones you could do with Title IX, maybe different programs, uh, different solutions for, di for different programs. So each of these reforms significantly relies upon the judiciary, and their, their desirability really, I think, turns on um, you know, how one views the behavior of the judiciary versus the behavior of, of, of the executive branch. Um, and to my mind, at least, the principal problem, especially in the last generation, but not only in the last generation, has come from the agencies, and therefore I, I favor these reforms. Um, judicial review as well operates to, to divide powers with the executive normally taking the initiative and the judiciary then operating as a check, and therefore this separation operates as, as a check on government power generally. So that's another advantage of it. Um, but I think, you know, you really do have to acknowledge that these reforms might look different under different circumstances. Um, while judicial review lo looks like it would operate as a check today, um, can obviously operate as a spur to regulation um, when, when run by, let's say, willful judges, as it was during the D.C. Circuit in the 1970s, when, when the judges really used it to, to, to get increased regulation. Still, I, I think on balance, it'll, it'll more often operate as a check on bad regulation than as a spur to it, um, so I, I favor it. But even if such judicial review is desirable, um, would a Republican Congress will be willing to enact these reforms? Um, I think this is a hard question, right? And I, I think we even see this, this here to some extent. Um, as, as to disagreements, um, a little bit about some of the executive. In the past, the Republicans have opposed the courts and, and favored agencies, very, very generally. Um, but I think times may have changed. They're, they're certainly in the process of changing. And I think in the end, it probably depends in part on, on who the president is, right? So, um, and this is where the, the ideological component works in. Um, you know, if you get a reformist president like President Reagan, then you might get these kind of reforms. You know, you, you, you look at Chris's chart and <laughs> the, the, the regulations uh, slow down under, un, un, under President Reagan. Now, there's probably a variety of reasons for that, but, but part of it is because there, there's a strong commitment, you know, to cut back on regulation. Um, if you've got a big government president, like, like certainly the, the second President Bush, and might be probably the first President Bush, then you might be much less likely to get get such regulation. So, so I really think it turns on, on the ideology. Um, 
The, the third set of reforms I want to talk about involve the internal operations of the executive branch. And in this category, uh, two reforms I want to talk about. One is employing more bipartisan commissions, and another one is using agencies to deregulate, or using an agency to deregulate. And these reforms have the advantage of not relying on other actors outside the executive branch. Instead, they place obstacles on the agency's ability to regulate. So, so first, let's talk about the, the bipartisan commissions. Um, the in, independent agencies are typically commissions with a significant number of commissioners who were from the minority party. And this, I think, actually operates to deter the agency from taking politically partisan acts. It's not, that's not perfect, obviously, but it, I think it does have an effect um, because the minority party commissioners are inside the agency. And now, while bipartisan commissions have generally been limited to the independent agencies, I think it makes sense to consider them for the executive branch agencies. Um, it's true that the president could direct the commissioners from the opposing party as to how to vote, you know, if the president has control. So, so they wouldn't be able to, to um, necessarily stop things. But, but having the commissioners on the inside would still place some checks on, on partisan schemes. Um, for example, one might give a minority of the commissioners the authority to undertake investigations to uncover wrongdoing. So, so it seems to me it's less likely that we would have had the IRS scandal if, if the agency had been operated as a bipartisan commission and you had people from both parties in the inside. Um, very different way of thinking about the IRS than the traditional way of, of um, you know, we want all civil servants. Um, so advocates of executive power might counsel that, uh, might counter that, you know, the executive should, should not have to include members of the opposing party. Um, but if you think about it, if the legislature, if the legislating is going to occur in the executive band rather than in the Congress, then there's a strong argument for requiring some of the bipartisan structures that have been avoided in the Congress and placing them in within the executive branch. Finally, I, I want to discuss a proposal that's one of my pet reforms. Um, and under this reform, Congress would create an agency, maybe it would be a new agency, maybe it would be OMB, that would have statutory authority to pass regulations that operate to deregulate. So specifically, the agency would have all the authority that existing agencies have, but only to pass regulations that deregulate. And the point of the agency, this deregulation agency, is to correct the bias that existing agencies have to regulate. So for example, the EPA is filled with people who've chosen to work there, and a lot of the reason is they highly value the environment and therefore they support more environmental regulation. And similarly, the EPA itself gains power from regulating, gains more power from regulating than it does from deregulating. And thus the agencies have a bias in favor of, of, of regulation. Now this deregulatory agency would have similar incentives to, to deregulate. Who would join this, this agency um, tend to be filled with people who favor deregulation. 
um, or more so than, than the, the regular agencies. And it would actually get more authority, um, at least reputationally and, 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 and otherwise, I think, um, the more deregulations it enacts. Right. So now, inevitably, there's going to be conflicts between this deregulatory agency and, and the, the regular regulatory agencies. And you're going to have to have a method for resolving the conflict. And inevitably, I think that, that needs to be the president. right? But even if under a president who's not disposed to deregulate, I still think the agency would have significant benefits. Because they would have the initiative in proposing these deregulations um, by raising the issues in a serious form that would say, you know, this, this is a regulation we want to, to, to deregulate. It would publicize the case for these deregulations. And it would put really the regulatory agencies on the defensive. Um, so, in general, these, these internal constraints, as I say, they, they do have certain advantages. They don't rely on an external agency like the judiciary. Instead, they, they sort of operate to slow down regulations and I think improve the content of them. I don't know. My guess is that a, a Republican Congress might be willing to adopt some of these proposals, at least the one establishing the deregulatory agency, but maybe, maybe I'm wrong. So, um, of course, in the end, I think there might be some resistance, even if, even if you, you tell a story about an ideological commitment on the part uh, of the Republicans. Uh, a Republican president might not want to adopt these, these um, reforms because they might cut back on, on the president's power. The administrative agencies might be against them. But I even think there's a device for getting around this. Um, so one way to do this would be the Republicans could enact these reforms in the second year of the first term of the, of the, of the president. Um, and then make them effective four years later, which would be in the sixth term, sixth year of the presidency. Um, this would essentially reduces their effect on the current president, right? But, but goes forward with this. And obviously this sounds very political, um, what, a, what a shock. Um, but uh, the Republicans could argue that this delay is necessary, these are significant changes, and needs some time to be implemented. Okay, well, let me stop at that point. Okay, thank you very much. Michael, Ed, you're up next. Okay, well, I have, um, I'm going to sort of pick up on uh, Michael's theme. I have a suggestion uh, for th uh, thinking about, um, yeah, that's fine, uh, thinking about uh, reforming uh, regulation. It's a much smaller, more minor suggestion, uh, but um, I want to do it from a somewhat broader perspective. So um, I just uh, wrote a book about the nature of the administrative state and how it's brought with it a transformation of morality. And I decided to think about it in terms, in historical terms, so I started with the fall of Rome. So that's what I want to do now. I'll get to the APA in about five minutes. Um, so uh, during the course of the fourth century, uh, centralized power collapses in the West, that is to say the Latin part of the Roman uh, Empire. Um, but people didn't realize that. Uh, their understanding was that the uh, Western Empire was going through a bad time. Uh, and uh, so 
Uh, this is why I think modern historians often refer to, prefer to the, uh, refer to this period as late antiquity rather than the Dark Ages or something like that. So people kept trying to revive the Roman Empire. Charlemagne was the most specific, uh, spectacular example of that. And it took many centuries before they realized they weren't going to be able to do it. Uh, in any event, uh, a, uh, in the 11th century, a, um, a French uh, a duke, William, conquers England, which is the country relevant for us, in 1066, it's a famous date, it's on the tree uh, ring out, uh, outside this, uh, this, this room. And at that point, there was a reconceptualization. That is to say, they gave, people had given up on reviving the Roman Empire and the imperial model of governance and were thinking in terms of the new model, that is to say, feudal monarchy. Now, at that time, when William uh, takes over England, there are two countervailing forces that might constrain uh, the king, and these are the nobility and the church. And the way those worked is, was to impose substantive standards on the king, what was moral for the king to do, what was consistent with the rights of the nobility uh, for the king to do. And the story of the next uh, 800 years or so is the collapse of those two countervailing forces as, political, um, uh, as having any political effect. The nobility and the church both cease to ex exert any significant control on the centralizing monarchies in, uh, in the Western world. Um, what happens instead, and this is specific to England now, but what happens instead is two instrumentalities created by the king to govern become the source of constraint. And these, of course, are parliament and the, um, and, and the judiciary. So uh, 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 Henry II, in, uh, at the end of the uh, tw uh, 12th century, creates uh, an administrative agency, in effect, the common law. It's the, it's to impose law common to the realm. That's why it's called common law. It's imposed by statute, and the idea is, and it gets a very broad delegation. Um, uh, solve, uh, originally solve a particular problem involving conflicts of land, grants, but ultimately uh, other management tasks get um, associated with it. Uh, and then parliament, which is created essentially to give the king taxing power, but also to give a voice to the king's allies in his fight with the nobility in the church, which is the cities, and the people who were newly freed because they were outside of the, the feudal system. Now, over time, what happens uh, is that the king's power is constrained by the progressive growth of these two institutions as they arrogate power to themselves and develop a political base. So in the 17th century, you have the common law courts asserting an authority over the king, that's the famous Dr. Bonham's case, but also a much more general authority to uh, uh, control uh, the, um, uh, the, the monarchy. And at the same time, you have parliament, of course, they execute one king, uh, then after the restoration, uh, they depose the second. And by the end of the 18th century, when we have the transition to administrative government, um, the king has been reduced basically to a figurehead and no longer exercises authority, okay? Now, uh, here's the thing. Notice the, 
the church and the nobility are gone, so the, the way that the king's power has been reduced to zero is not through the imposition of substantive standards on the things that a king can do, but rather the growth of two uh, institutions, uh, uh, a legislature and a judiciary, that have reduced the king's power to zero. Okay, now, the Administrative Procedure Act. So, <laughs> here's the way that the administrative... That's a quick transition. The, 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 <laughs> I'll get back to the French, yeah. Okay. So this is the way that I think the Administrative Procedure Act looked to the drafters. That is to say, um, there were um, uh, two tracks, rulemaking and adjudication. And there was formality and informality. So rulemaking could be in, um, start at 553 and end at 553. That was informal. Adjudication could start with 554 and then go on to the formal sections, 555, 556. Rulemaking could shift over to formal sections as well. So you had uh, uh, two types of rulemaking and one type of adjudication. Now, what was behind this conceptually, I think, was that these, um, the administrative state is new. They're trying to grapple with how to control it. And basically, they're relying on, and this is true for the design as well as the control, they're relying on familiar models that come from our historical and, uh, uh, and legal experience. So adjudication, what's your model for that? Well, that's easy. That's the courts. It's very familiar to people, law-trained people, know exactly what's going on with, with the courts. They know, what, uh, uh, um, they know how court procedures uh, run. They know what's fair or unfair. Okay, rulemaking, the natural model is the legislature. This is a little more complicated, of course, because the, the control of the legislature or the, the rules of the legislature are governed by the fact that they're representatives. And the people who are making rules in the agencies are not representatives. So it requires um, a good deal more adaptation uh, from the legislative model, but I think they had the legislative model in mind. So that's what it looked like, I think, from their perspective. Now, um, uh, uh, scholars and observers were quick to point out that uh, what they had done is, in fact, uh, created a classic four-box grid, uh, with rulemaking and adjudication being the two categories, and formal, uh, informal and formal being the, the, the two levels. And this is uh, familiar. We have informal rulemaking, uh, we have formal rulemaking, and we have formal adjudication. Now, it quickly became apparent, Richard referred to this uh, yesterday, quickly became apparent that um, formal rulemaking uh, would not be uh, uh, possible, uh, that it was simply not an effective mode of governance. And so that dropped out, and that disappeared. Um, what's interesting is if you look at the blank box, informal adjudication. So that wasn't in the statute. That was a result of scholars observing that the statute that I think looked like this to the drafters looked like this to, um, uh, uh, to observers. But think for a moment about informal adjudication. What is that? Uh, well, that's what the statute uh, um, looks like when formal rulemaking drops out. Okay, It's gigantic. It's executive action. It's all those things that an executive authority does that don't fit into the two categories which were sufficiently familiar to have a model in English 
legal experience. Why? Because English legal experience was controlling the executive by reducing its power to zero, the king originally, by reducing its power to zero with these two institutions whose procedures and models we were familiar with, the legislature and the, um, uh, 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 and the judiciary. This left us with a conceptual gap. Namely, we don't have models for um, how to deal with executive action. Now, that big, um, uh, we, they didn't even notice it when they drafted the statute, although it was subsequently uh, noticed. That big box there of informal adjudication is what we've been talking about in this conference by and large. I mean, there have been very few complaints that I've heard about the way that um, uh, agency adjudications are conducted. A little bit more about uh, uh, notice and comment rulemaking, but most of the commentary has been we should have more of it or we should subject things to it. But the concerns, Jennifer's uh, PDAs, uh, Zachary's waivers, uh, Richard's guidance, um, and to some extent the impact of a presidential signing statement um, uh, all lie in that um, large uh, undefined category of informal adjudication. So this leads to my modest uh, 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 proposal, uh, which is that that's where the work should be done. That's where the work, we need to think about ways. And now I would suggest, um, and uh, you know, I, I would suggest that uh, that is a possibility for a kind of a bipartisan discourse, which is something that I think uh, it, we have a need of uh, uh, these days, because you can talk about it from two perspectives. And I, you know, I think uh, this is a potential project for the Hoover Institute. I certainly appreciate the fact that um, the uh, invitation list was varied in its um, uh, uh, political orientation and that uh, uh, a lefty like me was invited to come here. Uh, but I think there's a, you know, a, a real possibility for that because there are um, several different um, goals that can feed into the concern about uh, developing a conceptual framework for that large category that we call informal adjudication. One of them is certainly to decrease the inef uh, inefficiencies and unfairnesses that the administrative state in its uh, sort of willy-nilly growth has resulted in. But the other set of concerns is to increase the effectiveness of these regulations. We need to, uh, in my view, we need to be able to manage this incredibly complicated society in an effective way so that policies that are chosen by the people get effectuated in a way that conforms to the desires of the people in having um, initiated them through their uh, through their representatives, and I think it, you know a, a, a um, combined discourse of eliminating unfairnesses and increasing effectiveness um, in this area that where we still don't have conceptual models. That's the work to be done. It seems to me that's where uh, we need to uh, focus our attention, and that's where we need to be creative because our historical experience has failed to provide us with those conceptual models that are um, five, six, eight hundred years old in the areas of uh, rulemaking and formal adjudication.
Well, thank you uh, very much to the Hoover Institute or Institution for inviting me to uh, join you today. Um, it's a real pleasure uh, to be here with, uh, I think, a lot of the all-stars of administrative law and um, law and economics. And it's a real pleasure to be uh, on a panel uh, with uh, my three co-panelists. Uh, Michael Boskin, I never met until before until yesterday, but I feel uh, like I uh, learned a lot about economics from reading his articles in the Wall Street Journal. Um, so I've always thought I had the best of all worlds. I had a Harvard degree and a Wall Street Journal education. <laughs> and uh, that's due to you. Of course, I went to a school where we don't have Economics 101. We had, it's called Social Analysis 10, so that tells you a lot oh about <laughs> where intro economics at Harvard goes. And uh, Ed and Michael, uh, I think, consider very good friends of mine. Michael and I um, first met when I interviewed for a job at Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher, and he was an associate, and we had a, I remember it to this day, I hope he does, we had a very deep uh, conversation about uh, the original understanding and uh, the presidency. So I often say all my views about the commander-in-chief power are due to that interview with Michael 25 years ago, I think. He hasn't denied it publicly yet, thank God. And then Ed, of course, was a, um, a colleague of mine at Berkeley for uh, many years, and we uh, deeply miss him. And he was always, and I think still is, I think just uh, demonstrate from his remarks, one of the most creative thinkers in administrative law. And I always thought that he... Uh, you know, when you go to an ad law conference, I, I would often wonder whether um, we learned uh, more from having everyone in the one room, or this is a variation on John F. Kennedy's speech about Nobel Prize winners, or just having Ed Rubin sit in a room by himself. And, uh, you know, the link, <laughs> and linking uh, Charlemagne to our problems with the administrative state is really nothing I ever thought of before, was, uh, but I, I look forward to reading this uh, really creative uh, book. So I just said, uh, you know, the good thing about being the person that stands between the between you and the end of the conference and the lunch is that the less I say, the better. And I also think I was given the marching orders just to throw out some points so that there's some time also for uh, participation from the floor. So I'm just going to try to be very brief and just make three quick points based on what I heard. So um, a lot of, I think, what we've been talking about today and yesterday uh, is also, is, has been a lot about struggling to define the problem. Obviously, a lot of it's been provoked by uh, political controversies, and I think um, both the Obama administration and the Bush administration uh, have done things but in different areas that have provoked worries about the extent of executive discretion. Obviously, the most immediate one is uh, President Obama's decisions in the domestic area um, to not enforce the laws. And then I think of a lot of things that Ed discussed as fitting in that box of informal adjudication um, that many of the papers are about, I think of as uh, sort of subsidiary or lesser included powers to this greater power President Obama has claimed that we talked about mostly uh, yesterday afternoon and uh, about the uh, waiver of law, but the non-enforcement of the law. And so that's one way to think of it is if you really, I think, agree that the president can choose not to enforce law rather broadly, uh, either through calling it prosecutorial discretion or so on, then if you think he can do that, then what's the problem with all these lesser included things like signing statements or um, non-prosecution agreements or uh, guidances? Aren't those all just sort of features of this broader claim? And of course, we didn't uh, have much discussion of, the, of this issue uh, today and yesterday, but then President Bush and his administration, except with the signing statement paper, made uh, claims about uh, the extent of the commander-in-chief power, and of course I was personally involved with that. Um, so the question is, is that what is the real uh, problem? And so I think part of the problem might be that combines both of these issues is that a lot of the theories that we have or a lot of the governing structures we have were developed at times when 
uh, the economy or foreign affairs were very different. So I think one thing that's striking about uh, Ed's paper, and it's very similar, I think, to some of the things that were in Krista Moose's paper, are that uh, a lot of the governing structures we have for administrative action are, divine, are developed during times when the economy is really different. Right? The APA is from the 1930s and 40s, uh, when we had an industrial economy, not an information society, as we'd say. Or the big boost in signing statements or um, regulation occurs in the early 1970s, early starts in the 70s. Again, when the economy is very different from today, and it seems odd that we're uh, still arguing about how to match uh, this really 1930s and 40s vision about how law ought to be made and then adjudicated onto an economy that's really, really different. Uh, right, we're in, uh, unions were lo much larger then. I think private sector unions are below 10% now. And you know, we're a service economy and information economy, not a production manufacturing economy. Why should we still use an APA system to govern that kind of economy? And you can see this is also the same thing that's happened in foreign affairs. The thing that has st struck me about it then and now is that uh, you know, the way we think of the commander-in-chief power, the war powers resolution, the use of forces really defined for a world where we are fighting uh, big nation states like our own with conventional militaries. And a lot of the problems and struggles I think we're having then and now continuously have been about how do we reshape how we think about the military and how we govern the use of force and foreign affairs generally in a world where uh, there are a lot more different actors now that are actually taking advantage of all these changes in the economy that use a lot of the advances in the economy and travel, communication, uh, moving capital and labor around um, to advance their ability to fight in ways that we have a hard time uh, grappling with. So that's just a thought on the problem. The second thing is, uh, then let me just talk briefly about the remedies and turn it over to Michael on the floor. So uh, I think um, one uh, answer, and I think uh, uh, Michael's view is of this one, is that one way to respond to uh, problems we think uh, arise from uh, the growth in executive power, either because of domestic uh, efforts by the president to sort of rationalize the administrative state and, or push his policy agenda, um, or in foreign policy, of course, to respond to emergencies and crises uh, immediately is to increase the powers of the other branches. Right? That's a, certainly a, many of the suggestions in the papers were, should we increase judicial review? Should we increase congressional oversight? Um, should we create, demand more process of an AP? I'm not sure if that's what Ed would recommend, but when you do that grid, the, 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 the logical solution is make that right, missing box like the other three boxes, right? is to maybe subject a lot of this to the APA, which is what the judge in Texas has done. Right? The judge in Texas on Obama's immigration order, his holding was, I don't think this is a constitutional problem, the non-enforcement immigration laws. You should have just followed the APA. Right? It's exactly what Ed's grid seems to suggest. Uh, so the question I have is, and I raised this with uh, Jennifer's paper yesterday, is the answer to our problems to make everything more like the APA, uh, which has been heavily criticized for creating a sclerotic, you know, giving the government sclerosis. Uh, you know, the APA has produced a government that nobody likes because it's very slow to change, very difficult to take in new information, act quickly on it. Um, many people of all sides think it makes uh, terrible decisions, uh, whichever point of view you're coming from. Is really the, to, it, may, it produces, lawyers love this, it produces a beautiful uniformity of process and rules. Um, we love in law these ideas of trans-substantive uh, procedures that apply no matter what the substance is, but is that really going to solve uh, the problem that we're confronting by these changing circumstances in a 1930s, 40s system of producing laws. So I, I would just 
press on with Michael's point and maybe even take it a little farther because I think you know his uh, point of view is that you can do these things that might actually enhance executive power but I think they require the cooperation of the different branches. I think on both proposals, I think he thought Congress would have to pass something to create either the bipartisan commissions or the deregulatory agency, whatever this deregulatory agency is going to be. Uh, the only problem I would have with that proposal would be, does this actually fit within um, any of the ways we understand the incentives of the branches themselves to be operating in this field? So I would think that Congress actually likes things exactly the way they are. That's why I'm kind of dubious about the RAINS Act or other proposals for greater oversight. Uh, isn't, this, isn't the conventional story that Congress uh, prefers to have all these difficult decisions made by the agencies and they get uh, congressmen and women win re-election by not having to decide how much, what the mile per gallon requirement should be for cars or how much pollution there should be uh, in the air. Um, Similarly, why would the courts actually, you know, you could say Chevron defers to the executive, but the other story about Chevron um, is that it's a great deal for the judiciary. Right? The judiciary doesn't have to start second-guessing difficult decisions about which they are going to be heavily attacked for their competence. Um, I think that's a secondary point, or that's, we, we tend to focus on the, right, this has the effect of expanding the executive's power, but it's also sort of a self-protection device for the judiciary. Do we think the judiciary really wants to overturn Chevron and reinstall a hard look on all regulations or most regulations? I, I'm doubtful that they would want to do that. Um, and so it seems to me, if you uh, look at who has the incentive, uh, unfortunately, the, the uh, institution that's most criticized in the last two days, the presidency, is the only one left that we would expect to try to uh, create some kind of rationality to the administrative state uh, pretty much unilaterally, not because the president wants to. Uh, and this was my experience in the Bush administration. If it was the most, uh, uh, if it was a branch that exercised the most unilaterally exe unilateral executive power, it was done with a lot of internal reluctance. I don't think it was President Bush's nature or those of his advisors to want to exercise power unilaterally. Um, but they felt they had to because they didn't think the other branches would do anything. I would think that would also be true of administrative reform, that you're not going to get a lot of cooperation from the judiciary or Congress ultimately, and so that the president will have to do it himself. So what could you do, uh, this is I'll leave it, what could you do if you were advising the president, then whoever's president, uh, well it always seems to be, President Clinton or President Bush. <laughs> you don't have to change the business cards. So uh, if you were gonna advise either of those presidents, what would you recommend that they could do to improve administrative uh, performance, assuming the judiciary or the executive, uh, the Congress, were not going to do anything, neither oppose or advance. So one thing is, I think you could take a variation of Michael's point. You would just increase the power of OMB and OIRA, and you would say not only does OIRA have the power to block new regulations on cost-benefit analysis, but let's give OIRA the job of, uh, you know, a retroactive job. Why not have OIRA start going through existing and past regulations and subject all those to cost-benefit analysis, too, and then make uh, proposals for um, the suspension of enforcement of regulations where the costs really do exceed the benefits pending something uh, new, right? You could do something like that. Rather than have um, a uh, bipartisan uh, investigative committee, why not have the president create an internal ombudsman? You know, the original idea behind inspector generals, for example, but why not through an OMB create someone who had a sort of roving mandate to 
root out, not fraud and waste, but inefficient regulations and administrative practices throughout the executive branch. Um, presidents actually might like that because that would put off the responsibility for forming the administrative state onto someone else in the executive branch rather than necessarily himself. Um, in response, I thought, I thought Ed's uh, point is really uh, very interesting, but why not put, instead of seeking a remedy from the APA and the judicial and legislative approvals you would need for all these sort of sub-lesser-included uses of executive power, why not put someone in the White House in charge of the uses of that, of that power? Right, so whenever you wanted to go uh, use power in this sub-formal way, I agree with what Ed says, that this is just, but I, I, the one reason I would say is that the one uh, caveat I have to his point is that the reason why we're seeing all the papers today fit into that area is because that's also the most flexible area, right? If, if the APA is this kind of dinosaur of uh, producing uh, regulation and laws, and of course everything the government wants to do that's new or innovative or creative is also going to be pushed through that through that one sphere that's not regulated by the APA. You know, presidents could try to regulate and formalize how that, the powers in that area are going to be used rather than trying to seek it from the other branches, which have, I, I'll close here, don't have the incentive, I think, in their own political self-interest to cooperate in any way with any serious reforms of the administrative state. So, uh, again, I say thanks a lot for having me here. I just want to say, I, I'm sure I speak for everyone, this has been a wonderful conference, extremely professionally run. As a Berkeley professor, uh, I am very envious of the, the great luxury and wealth within which you, you uh, conduct your operations. But I really predict that you spend a lot more money on it than we do at Berkeley. And we're always very aware of that fact, uh, that you're the taxpayers and we are the ones who get to spend the tax dollars. So we could never put on a luxurious conference in order to show that we're spending the taxpayers' dollars wisely. <laughs> so with that, let me uh, close and turn it back over to the other panelists. Thank you, John. Okay, we have time for a few questions and comments, and, and then Alan is going to make a few, few remarks at the end. Yes. Thank you. This is for Ed. Um, I really enjoyed what you had to say, and I thought about this uh, in response, actually, to Jennifer's uh, talk yesterday. I wonder if what we're missing that may have been present um, in 17th century England is a, a court of equity that is, has the flexibility um, both in the substance of what it applies and the kinds of remedies that it can uh, prescribe, uh, the, which are you know, very similar to the kinds of remedies that the court may require in um, the non-prosecution agreements, for instance. And it, that certainly doesn't capture all of the things that we've been talking about this weekend, but it, it might capture you know, more than one of them. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there are other uh, kinds of models. You could look at other countries. You can look at other historical experiences. Um, I guess the, the, the thrust of my concern is that we need new ones, that this is a new form of government, that we have regulatory government is a new form of government, and that we start, um, we need to start thinking about really new ways of making it uh, work. I would suggest, for example, that the whole area of policy analysis would be a productive way of thinking about it. That is to say, the kind of Weberian um, uh, instrumental rationality that lies at the base of 
administrative government could serve as generating um, uh, possible uh, ways of thinking about uh, making it both more more effective and uh, more um, uh, more more fair. Um, I think our um, uh, our developing uh, conceptions of civil rights are very important in terms of the way the administrative government interacts with individuals uh, who um, are less able than uh, regulated firms to protect themselves from uh, various um, uh, actions that we may regard as creating problems of, 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 of fairness. Um, and I think we need to think about um, really uh, new norms the norms that we've been generating in modern society and how those norms can be translated into uh, kinds of rules that would work. I mean, the 13th century was a very creative time, but um, you know, I think uh, it, what, what it's saying to us is we need to be equally creative and start thinking about some new things that we can do. Alan, you're next. Yes. I want to respond to what I take to be John Hughes' question, challenge. He asked, why would we cooperate in reform? My answer is, in perceived or actual crises, and there's a difference. Uh, a perceived crisis is something like what's happening in the administrative state. It's slowing the growth rate. I mean, we're allocating special privileges to various groups who cement themselves into strong positions and prevent change that would be beneficial to the populace as a whole. That will lead to a perceived crisis. The growth rate will go down, it'll stay down for longer periods of time, and the public will say, we want change. That's what happened when Reagan was became president. That's what happened when Thatcher became president in Britain. There was a sense that there was a real crisis and that needed perceived change. Actual crises are things like the breakdown of the Bretton Woods system, that you have to do something. Uh, the fact that people are burning their draft cards and going to Canada, you have to do something. Our job, I believe, as academics, out of my experience over a long lifetime of dealing with these issues is that our job is in the period when we're not in crisis is to think of the reforms that would make sense when the crisis comes because that's when you'll get the reforms. And in the case of the draft, for example, what was the alternative to the all-volunteer army? It was on the left, the idea that you'd have a lottery. If you won the lottery, you got to fight in Vietnam. Not a very attractive program. In the case of, of the breakdown of Bretton Woods, what you would get was massive controls over capital movements and so on, which were clearly not desirable. So floating exchange rates, originally an idea that would be temporary until they could get back to a fixed exchange rate system, but that was un didn't happen. So as I said, my view of what this conference and other things that I've done is about is to try to come up with the kind of things that Ed Rubin came up with, that is proposals would say, when we get to make the change, here are some things that will bring about the change. And I think that's quite important 
and what conferences like this are all about. So the Constitution that we had had limited powers of the executive. We've gone well beyond that. That is leading, in my opinion, to slow growth and a less desirable outcome. We're different. We're not France. In France, it has worked very badly for decades. They have slow growth, and people are willing to keep that. Well, and I say willing to keep that is they oppose changes, even the most modest changes that would take away the prerogatives of those people who have entrenched themselves through law. I don't see that happening here because we're a much more heterogeneous society and so on. It isn't the just, in my opinion, that people don't like what goes on. <clears throat> I, my model of politics is that when you set a law, there's always people who think you didn't do enough and people who think you did too much. So there's always dissatisfaction. So that isn't the source. The source is that the outcomes are bad, and we agree that the outcomes are bad, and that's how we bring about change through what I call perceived and actual crises. <clears throat> so that's what we're about. And finally, to John Hugh on a minor point, you asked why we can run such a conference at, at Stanford. We have the same thing that you have. We have outside donors who pay the money to run the conference. It isn't run out of the Hoover Institution's budget. It's run out of funds, which is a You have a lot more of those than we do. <laughs> well, um, even very generous, yes. Yeah. Uh, I, I would agree with that, and I certainly add that uh, Berkeley has really become a private institution over the years, so uh, the notion that it's just public, but I do agree that the, uh, I, I wouldn't call this uh, luxurious or lavish as you did, but uh, the degree of scrutiny on things like salaries and noting that there are markets uh, gets a lot more negative attention in a so-called public university. I'm sorry I ever brought this up. <laughs> Rich, Richard, <laughs> Richard, <laughs> Richard, you had a comment. You had your hand up a moment ago. <laughs> okay. Okay. Down here. Down here. Okay. Michael, you're up. So I just wanted to give uh, three hearty cheers to Ed Rubin's talk. It's something that I've also thought a great deal about these giant black holes within the APA. <clears throat> some of which um, they're not, some of which are adjudicatory and some of which are policy implementation, but equally ungoverned and, and needing to be governed. And so just to take one small concrete step in that direction, um, how about changing the judicial review rules for stuff coming out of the black hole? Um, when we have regular adjudication or regular rulemaking, a record is formed at the agency level because there's a defined procedure. But in all of these other areas in the black hole, uh, there is no organized procedure. Uh, yet, under present law, the courts review them on the basis of the administrative record which doesn't exist. So it's a concrete step in that direction. Okay, I have I a just want to make okay, a, a, a quick point about oh, that. Michael. So I, I have um, a slightly different view about where this came from. I'm not sure it really 
matters that much. I agree with Ed that, that this is the areas where we've been focused on and there's, there's an absence of effective governance. So, so there's no doubt about that. My understanding, though, is that you know, the APA was designed to be modular. And so basically you had certain, so, so Congress could say, all right, well, here's formal rulemaking, here's informal rulemaking, here's, and um, so, so it had to apply across all the different agencies. And in the case of informal adjudication, there was A, just so many different things covered under that category, and B, they weren't general to all the agencies. So by not including it within the APA, what they were doing was saying, we're going we're to govern this statute by statute, agency by agency, based on the organic statute, because we don't have a general answer to that. So that's different than, than sort of not being aware. In fact, I think a lot of it was the, the, the Jim Landis people who, who fought hard as part of the compromise, and they got the way I think about it, they got informal rulemaking and they got informal adjudication, and the people who want to constrain got the formal stuff. So, so it wasn't that it, it, it wasn't anticipated, um, it was just part of the deal. Um, and and I, I, I think Ed's right that, that the, the, and another comment made this point as well, that, that the, the executive has gone into these areas because they've been relatively unregulated, and I think it'd be great to have some general regulations, but I think the, the it wasn't a, an oversight as much as part of the plan in the beginning. Okay, Jen, you're next. Oh, Richard, you're next, then Jen, then, then you, then me. That's it. I want to ask a question that I hinted at in my own presentation and not, and not answer to my satisfaction, which is how much of this is dependent on the structure and the nature of the rights that you're trying to do. I look at the New Deal as a relatively timid extension of the welfare state compared to the stuff that happens when you start with the 1970s revolution. You know, for example, take the collective bargaining statutes. What they do is they require the government to determine the scope of the unit and to run an election and so forth. But the entire force of the labor side of this thing is it didn't want the government to set the rules by mandatory arbitration or something of that sort. They believed that this was a form of private ordering. So the stress on the administrative system seems to me to be taken off at least in part by virtue of the fact that the process was supposed to be run by more conventional rules given the structure of the monopoly. You get to something like the EPA or the Modern Pensions Acts and so forth, um, the disability statutes, you're now in the business of distributing positive rights. And that means you have to have a taxing program on the one hand and a distribution program on the other. And there are people like myself who have said for a long time, I don't know how to do this. Um, I can't figure out what's right, and if I can't figure out what's right, I can't figure out what's wrong. If I don't know what's right and I don't know what's wrong, I don't know how to oversee a process that starts to work. So I think that the breakdown starts with the post-1970s regulation, and I think it starts because of the structure of the positive rights essentially leads you to the point where you can't figure out what it is that you think with these new generational agencies turns out to be right along. And there's no question that, you know, you look at the Soviet nomenclature and the diktats that they issue, and then you see what the government issues under the ADA, American Disability Act, as to the structure and the nature of doorknobs and handles and steps and so forth, right? At that degree of particularity, how can anybody get a way, A, to avoid the informal negotiations, and B, develop the normative framework to oversee that? That seems to me to be what the challenge is 
that we've moved into a substantive regime where administrative law will eventually take this form because you can't figure out external guidelines. Is this crazy or is this in fact correct? That's my question to the three. Quick, quick answer whether Richard's crazy or not. On this point. Well, um, I guess it depends where you're coming from. Uh, I mean, what I would say is it's, um, it's not crazy, it's responsible. We uh, face enormous crises in our, uh, our society. Uh, in, uh, I was in Beijing, people have an app on their cell phones to decide where to go, where the air is good on that particular day. That's a traditional anti-pollution function. Okay. Well, uh, that's... It's not a distribution of good, Okay, but um, that's certainly part of your uh, 1970 uh, in, uh, environmental regulation was part of your 1970. But I think um, uh, the questions of redistribution and economic fairness and whether or not we're uh, moving uh, to a situation where our disparities in wealth are um, uh, uh, destructive of our concepts of social justice. I mean, these are matters for the democratic process to uh, resolve, and it's resolved them in favor of a fairly broad set of regulations and um, uh, a active role for the administrative state. I think, you know, following up on Alan's point, the, 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 the task is to figure out, for scholars, is to figure out how to make these things work in uh, conformance with people's intentions and to make them uh, efficient and to make them effective. I guess okay, I, Jen, I have a well, question. Yeah, go ahead, please. Go ahead. I will yeah, please, please. We've got just a very few minutes, and there are several more questions. No, no, I, I just wanted to. I mean, I, I'm sympathetic with with Richard's point here. Um, I, I, I guess I put it a slightly different way, sort of a response to that. So, you know, the question is: Are you confident that in this area the democratic process works well? And, and I'm not. Um, and um, if, if one sees it, you know, the democratic process, if we want to call it voters, we can call it special interests and, and, and the like. So we, we do have budgets, and we see that spending goes wild, right, um, um, when we have deficits. We, we don't really have a regulatory budget, but if we had a regulatory budget, we would see the same thing. In fact, I think in some ways we would see worse. So, so yeah, there, there, there's an important role for some of these regulations. The question is, are there any constraints that the system imposes on it? And, and the problem that I see is that there aren't enough constraints. Um, Jen, real quickly here. So, Ed, I really liked your way of framing the two-by-two two matrix, my, uh, favorite. The, my, my favorite tool. Um, and John, I think you're right to challenge all of us to be wary when we're thinking about constraints about leaping into formal rulemaking, and I have to think about that. But then I have a question for Ed and for Michael, which is people keep turning then to judicial review as a constraint. But when I turn to my own little parochial area, right, uh, uh, PDAs, if I think about judicial review as a constraint on the type of mandate that can be imposed, I don't see how it's possible in an area where Congress has said nothing about the goal of corporate criminal liability in any sophisticated way. The agencies, whether it's the DOJ, if you think of it as an agency, the SEC, also have not articulated a clear view of the purpose and therefore a clear view of the mandates. 
So there's no overarching policy goal, no guidelines, and which leaves a choice between Judge Gleason, who basically says, we'll stop unconstitutional things, but step out of the way, or recently Judge Leon, who claimed to be channeling Judge Gleason, but basically said, I think this stinks, I don't like it for no particular analytical reason, so I'm just gonna refuse to do it, i.e., we just substituted a prosecutor for the judge, I mean the judge for the prosecutor, with no real theory either. So how does judicial review work as a constraint in this wild, wild west where the agencies aren't articulating goals? Well, I, I agree with you. Again, you know, uh, so I was talking about uh, the judicial model as having been internalized in the APA, but it's also been used as a control mechanism. It's very traditional, it's very old, it works in some circumstances, but we need other control mechanisms. We've seen OMB develop as a control mechanism. Uh, there are possibilities other nations use ombudspersons as control mechanisms. And I think we need to be creative about thinking of new kinds of institutional structures that we can use to at this preserve the prosecutorial discretion that's necessary and at the same time uh, deal with some of the fairness issues that, that, that arise. But I think you're right, the judiciary is a um, uh, limited tool because it comes from uh, a, you know, a different era and has constraints that uh, uh, make, it, um, make its uh, approach not fully applicable to current problems. Well, I, was, oh, go ahead. I thought Pardon the question me. was to me. So. Okay, that's correct. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Michael was championing oh, oh, that's fine. That okay. Well, that there's well, okay. That, that one's in desperate need of guidelines from uh, big justice. Okay, there's one question back here. There's one, one question back here. Why don't you guys continue offline? There's one question back here, and I'm going to make a question and a, ask a question and a comment, and then uh, we'll have Alan speak. It's a, I have a question, question first, or a comment first, and a question. Uh, Michael. Um, have, have you looked at the Congressional Review Act or the Regulatory Accountability Act that came through Congress recently in the last few years? Yeah, they, they haven't been used very much at all. Right, the CRA doesn't have but a few instances. But it can't, there, there is an effort underway to, to amend that. And do, do you see that being any bit promising? Um, well, I, I, to the extent that we're talking about movements towards the RAINS Act, I said what I said about it, which is I don't think Congress is willing to, to put itself in that situation. So I, I don't think that's the, the I mean, I, I think it would be great if they, if they enacted it. Well, great, it would be good um, if they enacted it, but, but I don't see it happening. And so I don't see anything with real teeth um, going in, off in that direction. But in contrast to John, I, I, I do think that, that the Congress might be persuaded to do things where um, other parties <laughs> are, are involved in the process. Your evaluation of the historical genesis of the government is just brilliant. And, and looking at the way the Europeans have evolved over the last 20, 25 years, you could see where, where there are remnants, where there are vestiges, and, and where they try to modernize. The question here is, I mean, based on the fact that Europe is mostly positive right-oriented, we're negative right-oriented, how do you see um, that being useful here. I'll, I'll let Richard answer that. I agree <laughs> with that. We are. I think we are shifting to a much, a much more positive rights orientation. Uh, so 
Um, I, I, I mean, we're, we're short on time, but I'll just leave it at that. Mike or John, you want to respond? Okay. So let me make a couple of comments and uh, then pose a question. Um, so these revolve, uh, these are uh, inspired, if you think of them as inspired, from Ed's uh, historical narrative, uh, which I found quite interesting. And when you're going over that kind of span of history, surely what, uh, what's going on is a Darwinian evolution based on power of different groups in society. And uh, so what's going on, it seems to me, is the rise of economic or other interests and powers that uh, lead to changes in constitutions or bargain, the bargaining power between different groups, the king and the nobility, the middle class, and, uh, and so on. Um, and those get codified temporarily, and then they get pushed aside because of these other interests and powers. Um, uh, and looking for an historical example of one of your boxes, I was drawn to the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie. When Kieran Knightley is kidnapped by the pirates and taken to the ship captained by Jeffrey Rush, she demands under the pirate code the right to parley with the pirate, uh, the pirate leader. And Jeffrey Rush looks at her and says, code? They're sort of more like guidelines. <laughs> so to make a point, the point is that the power relations, she was not in a very powerful position at that time, Jeffrey Rush was, kind of affect the interpretation of these things. And I think that uh, when you're going over that broad sweep of history, over a short period of time, that probably doesn't change much. And uh, we can be focused on this act or the last few years, et cetera. Um, and I want to come back to this idea of constraining government, having been long thought about what would be ways to constrain government and having been involved in the design of a couple. Um, I think there are some partial successes as well as the failures that Michael is uh, referring to. And I'm just wondering what you all think about um, various ways we might actually constrain the regulatory state. Uh, Michael spoke negatively about a, uh, an overall budget cap or a, a bu an actual regulatory budget. All these things can be gained, but I remember when we put in some very specific rules, uh, PAYGO rules and caps on discretionary spending, now, Bush 41 paid a very high political and a modest economic price by agreeing to tax increase. With a, he was negotiating with huge Democratic majorities in both the House and Senate at the time. But those things worked on PAYGO rules, a marginal balanced budget rule, the uh, cap on spending, too high by, my, by what I would have liked, but it did, they did live with it for many years. It was re-upped during the Clinton administration and Republican Congress. And, and then what happened was, the economy kind of eventually came back, came back strongly, revenues poured in, and they said, what do we have to do this for? We've got a balanced budget, we can go spend what we want. So um, that's when it kind of broke down. But for you know, eight or nine years, there was some process that worked for a while. Um, so I'm just wondering uh, whether we should be so nihilistic about trying to get some rules that actually are stronger rules or stronger enforcement of rules that can lead to a slower growth or to a rollback of the regulatory state. I very much like John's suggestion of a going back and uh, maybe having something that requires uh, for any non-trivial rule or uh, that you have to go back and reevaluate it every 10 years or five years or something and, uh, and have to uh, uh, take a vote to 
continue this thing if, the, if it's way out of whack on the costs and benefits. All that can be gained, but it just seems to me that um, that's important. I'd also say that it seems to me the regulatory state has grown, Chris mentioned this, he might not agree with my interpretation of it, has grown in part because of constraints on formal spending and, uh, in the budget process. And so what we've seen is Congress wanting to do things, to, to give positive rights and rich, for a richer set of things, to uh, achieve certain goals, whatever it may be, um, by a regulation that it's going to have a very hard time directly appropriating money for. And uh, so I think we always have to be aware of the elastic boundaries when it mandates you know, this thing on a car that's like collecting taxes and paying the car companies to install it. So, but it seems to me that we have some opportunities to take advantage of things that have worked a little bit in some other places. There are other rules that have worked until they haven't. Um, you know, the, the Maastricht Treaty worked briefly and then it was inconvenient, so it's been ignored and re-upped and re-expanded and so on. So question. Are you really that nihilistic about rules on, the regula on regulation? Yes. Look, I, I, I think some, Congress is going to be willing to do some of them, um, depending on, on who the Congress is, right? So, and depending on the, the nature of the crisis. I think, I think some, I mean, I didn't study that, the PAYGO stuff carefully, but my understanding of it is as you described it, which is that it, it, it had some, some limitations on, on spending. Um, I've got an article, I don't know how many years old it is, you know, arguing that, that we ought to have a supermajority rule for spending, make it part of the Constitution, right? And there was a whole, uh, I don't think that's likely <laughs> to, to get enacted. So, so, so the question is, um, what can you realistically hope to get? And um, so I, I think there are a couple of things that, that I've talked about. I think there, there might be other things that, that are outside the scope. I think that would be great. Um, I didn't talk really much about the spending side, though. I just think that you take an example of Obamacare, for example. All these uh, cross-subsidies are laid off into the private sector and don't show up, uh, right? They're, they're basically uh, healthy young people subsidizing uh, uh, ill older people with these very tight bands and all this sort of stuff. In California, we had the electricity crisis and all the cost, most of the cost of that wound up being shoved off on the ratepayers so it wouldn't show up in the state's budget even though the state caused it and, and refusal to, buy, to allow the firms to buy uh, under long-term contracts and things of this sort. So it seems to me for overall fiscal and economic sanity, you have to have some way to cap this stuff or otherwise you're just constantly dealing with a leaky toothpaste tube. I, I mean, I think the idea of a regulatory budget in concept is, is fine, whether or not, you know, you yeah. could implement it and, um, but I, I didn't mention it, but I, I, I think it's, I think we do need a budget in this area. Um, I think there'll be force, fierce resistance against it, though. Uh, I, I agree with that. I'm not saying it's easy or... No, 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 but... but I'm but, not but saying it will work, but... But if we have a feasible way of doing it, if, if and, I, and I don't know to what extent there's agreement on, on, on the cost of these regulations, maybe there is, then um, just even having an institution that creates the, that, that announces the regulatory budget, sort of like you know, the Congressional Budget Office, um, would be a very helpful thing, a step in the right direction. Anybody else have any comments they want to add? No, well, I, I would just... Uh, let's first thank the panelists. <laughs>
And, and then let's thank Alan and Ken Scott and wish Ken a speedy recovery and uh, let Alan come up and say a few words. Thank you for organizing a great conference. Yeah, it's nice to meet you. Is Chris Edley still being? Let's get a microphone to Alan. These conferences don't just occur. They require a good deal of work, and, and it's Marianne, Denise, who have made this possible. I must have... I will miss the uh, four or five emails a day I get from Marianne asking me questions about how we should do this and whether we should do that. So Marianne, you've been a great help in getting this off the ground and making it a success. And in my opinion, it has been a success. I've run many conferences. This one was a, certainly up near the top of things where we really had some remarkable discussions about issues, recommendations for how we could solve some of those issues, and that's the first. These papers will be published in a journal, we believe, so that they will be together, and we th I think that will stimulate other people to begin to take seriously the sets of issues that we've been discussing here, and that's the way that progress occurs on many of these issues. This is the first of a series of conferences. Um, <coughs> the private foundations that have supported the present conference have renewed for another year and I believe are very interested in what we're doing and in what we're trying to accomplish. So we will continue to work on these and, and uh, push the idea that through the discussions that we have here between people with different political ideas, with uh, different groups of people. We tried very hard to get members of Congress and their staffs to come. It's legislative time. The Congress is in session, so that became very difficult, and we weren't able to do that. I have a long series of conferences that I've run where we bring together staff of agencies and academics to discuss issues, learn from each other, <clears throat> and that's the aim of this series. So we're at the start of what is perhaps a long road, but it's a road which, in my opinion, we need to travel. So I thank you all for what you have done to get us on the right road. Thank you very much. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.